Section three of the Ingoldsby Legends First Series. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Ingoldsby Legends First Series by Richard Harris Barham. Section three. On the following morning, contrary to his usual custom, Seaforth was the first person in the breakfast parlour. As no one else was present, he did precisely what nine young men out of ten so situated would have done he walked up to the mantelpiece established himself upon the rug and subducting his coat-tails one under each arm turned towards the fire that portion of the human frame which it is considered equally indecorous to present to a friend or an enemy a serious not to say anxious expression was visible upon his good-humoured countenance and his mouth was fast buttoning itself up for an incipient whistle when little flo a tiny spaniel of the blenheim breed the pet object of miss julia simpkinson's affections bounced out from beneath a sofa and began to bark at his pantaloons they were cleverly built of a light grey mixture a broad stripe of the most vivid scarlet traversing each seam in a perpendicular direction from hip to ankle in short the regimental costume of the royal bombay fencibles the animal educated in the country had never seen such a pair of breeches in her life omne ignotum pro magnifico the scarlet streak inflamed as it was by the reflection of the fire seemed to act on flora's nerves as the same colour does on those of bulls and turkeys she advanced at the pas de charge and her vociferation like her amazement was unbounded a sound kick from the disgusted officer changed its character and induced a retreat at the very moment when the mistress of the pugnacious quadruped entered to the rescue lassie me flo what is the matter cried the sympathizing lady with a scrutinizing glance levelled at the gentleman it might as well have lighted on a feather-bed his air of imperturbable unconsciousness defied examination and as he would not and flora could not expound that injured individual was compelled to pocket up her wrongs others of the household soon dropped in and clustered round the board dedicated to the most sociable of meals the urn was paraded hissing hot and the cups which cheer but not inebriate steamed redolent of hyson and pico muffins and marmalade newspapers and finnan haddies left little room for observation on the character of charles warlike turnout at length a look from caroline followed by a smile that nearly ripened to a titter caused him to turn abruptly and address his neighbour it was miss simpkinson who deeply engaged in sipping her tea and turning over her album like a female chrononotomphologus immersed in cogibundity of cogitation an interrogatory on the subject of her studies drew from her the confession that she was at that moment employed in putting 
the finishing touches to a poem inspired by the romantic shades of bolsover the entreaties of the company were of course urgent mr peters who liked verses was especially persevering and sappho at length compliant after a preparatory hem and a glance at the mirror to ascertain that her look was sufficiently sentimental the poetess began there is a calm a holy feeling vulgar minds can never know or the bosom softly stealing chastened grief delicious woe oh how sweet at eve regaining yon lone tower's sequestered shade sadly mute and uncomplaining yow 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 yelled a hapless sufferer from beneath the table it was an unlucky hour for quadrupeds and if every dog will have his day he could not have selected a more unpropitious one than this mrs ogleton too had a pet a favourite pug whose squab figure black muzzle and tortuosity of tail that curled like a head of celery in a salad bowl bespoke his dutch extraction yow 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 continued the brute a chorus in which flo instantly joined sooth to say pug had more reason to express his dissatisfaction than was given him by the muse of simpkinson the other only barked for company scarcely had the poetess got through her first stanza when tom ingoldsby in the enthusiasm of the moment became so lost in the material world that in his abstraction he unwarily laid his hand on the cock of the urn quivering with emotion he gave it such an unlucky twist that the full stream of its scalding contents descended on the gingerbread hide of the unlucky cupid the confusion was complete the whole economy of the table disarranged the company broke up in most admired disorder and vulgar minds will never know anything more of miss simpkinson's ode till they peruse it in some forthcoming annual seaforth profited by the confusion to take the delinquent who had caused this stramash by the arm and to lead him to the lawn where he had a word or two for his private ear the conference between the young gentlemen was neither brief in its duration nor unimportant in its result the subject was what the lawyers call tripartite embracing the information that charles seaforth was over head and ears in love with tom ingoldsby's sister secondly that the lady had referred him to papa for his sanction thirdly and lastly his nightly visitations and consequent bereavement at the two first items tom smiled auspiciously at the last he burst out into an absolute guffaw steal your breeches miss bailey over again by jove shouted ingoldsby but a gentleman you say and sir giles too i am not sure charles whether i ought not to call you out for aspersing the honour of the family laugh as you will tom be as incredulous as you please one fact is incontestable the breeches are gone 
Look here, I am reduced to my regimentals, and if these go, tomorrow I must borrow of you. Rochefoucauld says there is something in the misfortunes of our very best friends that does not displease us. Assuredly we can, most of us, laugh at their petty inconveniences, till called upon to supply them. Tom composed his features on the instant, and replied with more gravity, as well as with an expletive, which, if my lord mayor had been within hearing, might have cost him five shillings. There is something very queer in this, after all. The clothes, you say, have positively disappeared. Somebody is playing you a trick, and ten to one, your servant has a hand in it. By the way, I heard something yesterday of his kicking up a bobbery in the kitchen, and seeing a ghost or something of that kind himself. Depend upon it, Barney is in the plot. It now struck the lieutenant at once that the usually buoyant spirits of his attendant had of late been materially sobered down, his loquacity obviously circumscribed, and that he, the said lieutenant, had actually rung his bell three several times that very morning before he could produce his attendance. Mr. Maguire was forthwith summoned, and underwent a close examination. The bobbery was easily explained. Mr. Oliver Dobbs had hinted his disapprobation of a flirtation carrying on between the gentleman from Munster and the lady from the Rue Saint-Honoré. Mademoiselle had boxed Mr. Maguire's ears, and Mr. Maguire had pulled Mademoiselle upon his knee, and the lady had not cried, Mon Dieu, and Mr. Oliver Dobbs said it was very wrong, and Mrs. Botherby said it was scandalous, and what ought not to be done in any moral kitchen, and Mr. Maguire had got hold of the Honorable Augustus suckle thumbkin's powder flask and had put large pinches of the best double dartford into mr dobbs tobacco box and mr dobbs pipe had exploded and set fire to mrs botherby's sunday cap and mr maguire had put it out with the slop basin barring the wig and then they were all so cantankerous that barney had gone to take a walk in the garden and then then Mr. Barney had seen a ghost. A what, you blockhead? asked Tom Inglesby. Sure, then, and it's meself will tell your honour the rights of it, said the ghost-seer. Meself and Miss Pauline, sir, or Miss Pauline and meself, for the ladies come first anyhow. We got tired of the hopstropolis scrimmaging among the old servants that didn't know a joke when they seen one and we went out to look at the comet. That's the Rory Bory alehouse they calls him in this country. And we walked upon the lawn, and divil if any alehouse there was there at all. And Miss Pauline said it was be case of the shrubbery, maybe. And why wouldn't we see it better beyond the trees? And so we went to the trees. But sorrow a comet did meself see there, barring a big ghost instead of it. A ghost? And what sort of a ghost, Barney? Ah, then, divil a lie I'll tell your honour. 
a tall old gentleman he was, all in white, with a shovel on the shoulder of him, and a big torch in his fist, though what he wanted with that it's meself can't tell, for his eyes were like gig-lamps, let alone the moon in the comet, which wasn't there at all. And Barney, says he to me, cause why he knew me, Barney, says he, what is it you're doing with the Colleen there, Barney? Divil a word did I say. Miss Pauline screeched, and cried murther in French, and ran off with herself, and of course meself was in a mighty hurry after the lady, and had no time to stop palavering with him anyway. So I dispersed at once, and the ghost vanished in a flame of fire. Mr. Maguire's account was received with avowed incredulity by both gentlemen, but Barney stuck to his text with unflinching pertinacity. A reference to Mademoiselle was suggested, but abandoned, as neither party had a taste for delicate investigations. "'I'll tell you what, Seaforth,' said Ingoldsby, after Barney had received his dismissal, "'that there is a trick here is evident.' and Barney's vision may possibly be a part of it. Whether he is most knave or fool, you best know. At all events, I will sit up with you tonight, and see if I can convert my ancestor into a visiting acquaintance. Meanwhile, your finger on your lip. T'was now the very witching time of night, when churchyards yawn and graves give up their dead. Gladly would I grace my tale with decent horror, and therefore I do beseech the gentle reader to believe that if all the succedania to this mysterious narrative are not in strict keeping, he will ascribe it only to the disgraceful innovations of modern degeneracy upon the sober and dignified habits of our ancestors. I can introduce him, it is true, into an old and high-roofed chamber, its walls covered on three sides with black oak wainscoting, adorned with carvings of fruit and flowers long anterior to those of Grinling Gibbons. The fourth side is clothed with a curious remnant of dingy tapestry, once elucidatory of some scriptural history, but of which not even Mrs. Botherby could determine. Mr. Simpkinson, who had examined it carefully, inclined to believe the principal figure to be either Bathsheba or Daniel in the lion's den, while Tom Ingoldsby decided in favour of the king of Bashan. All, however, was conjecture, tradition being silent on the subject. A lofty arched portal led into, and a little arched portal led out of, this apartment. They were opposite each other, and each possessed the security of massy bolts on its interior. The bedstead, too, was not one of yesterday, but manifestly coeval with days ere Seddon's was, and when a good four-post article was deemed worthy of being a royal bequest. The bed itself, with all the appurtenances of Pallias, mattresses, etc., was of far later date, and looked most incongruously comfortable. The casements, too, 
with their little diamond-shaped panes and iron binding, had given way to the modern heterodoxy of the sash-window. Nor was this all that conspired to ruin the costume, and render the room a meet haunt for such mixed spirits, only as could condescend to don at the same time an Elizabethan doublet and Bond Street inexpressibles. With their green Morocco slippers on a modern fender, in front of a disgracefully modern grate, sat two young gentlemen, clad in shawl-patterned dressing-gowns and black silk stocks, much at variance with the high cane-backed chairs which supported them. A bunch of abomination, called a cigar, reeked in the left-hand corner of the mouth of one, and in the right-hand corner of the mouth of the other, an arrangement happily adapted for the escape of the noxious fumes up the chimney, without that unmerciful funking other which a less scientific disposition of the weed would have induced. A small Pembroke table filled up the intervening space between them, sustaining at each extremity an elbow and a glass of toddy. Thus in lonely pensive contemplation were the two worthies occupied, when the iron tongue of midnight had told twelve. Ghost times come, said Inglesby, taking from his waistcoat pocket a watch like a gold half-crown, and consulting it as though he suspected the turret clock over the stables of mendacity. Hush, said Charles, did I not hear a footstep? There was a pause. There was a footstep. It sounded distinctly. It reached the door. It hesitated, stopped, and passed on. Tom darted across the room, threw open the door, and became aware of Mrs. Botherby toddling to her chamber at the other end of the gallery, after dosing one of the housemaids with an approved julep from the Countess of Kent's choice manual. "'Good night, sir,' said Mrs. Botherby. "'Go to the devil,' said the disappointed ghost-hunter. An hour, two, rolled on, and still no spectral visitation. Nor did aught intervene to make night hideous. And when the turret clock sounded at length the hour of three, Ingoldsby, whose patience and grog were alike exhausted, sprang from his chair, saying, This is all infernal nonsense, my good fellow. Deuce of any ghost shall we see to-night. It's long past the canonical hour. I'm off to bed, and as to your breeches, I'll insure them for the next twenty-four hours at least, at the price of the buckram. Certainly. Oh, thank ye, to be sure, stammered Charles rousing himself from a reverie which had degenerated into an absolute snooze. Good night, my boy. Bolt the door behind me, and defy the Pope, the Devil, and the Pretender. Seaforth followed his friend's advice, and the next morning came down to breakfast, dressed in the habiliments of the preceding day. The charm was broken, the demon defeated, the light greys with the red stripe down the seams were yet in rerum natura, and adorned the person of their lawful proprietor. 
Tom felicitated himself and his partner of the watch on the result of their vigilance. But there is a rustic adage which warns us against self-gradulation before we are quite out of the wood. Seaforth was yet within its verge. A rap at Tom Ingoldsby's door the following morning startled him as he was shaving. He cut his chin. Come in and be damned to you, said the martyr, pressing his thumb on the scarified epidermis. The door opened and exhibited Mr. Barney Maguire. Well, Barney, what is it? quoth the sufferer, adopting the vernacular of his visitant. The master, sir. Well, what does he want? The loanst of a breeches, plays your honour. Why, you don't mean to tell me. By heaven, this is too good, shouted Tom, bursting into a fit of uncontrollable laughter. Why, Barney, you don't mean to say the ghost has got them again. Mr. Maguire did not respond to the young squire's risibility. The cast of his countenance was decidedly serious. Faith, then, it's gone they are, sure enough. Hasn't meself been looking over the bed, and under the bed, and in the bed? For the matter of that, and divil a hayperth of breeches is there to the fore at all. I'm bothered entirely. Hark ye, Mr. Barney, said Tom, incautiously removing his thumb and letting a crimson stream incarnadine the multitudinous lather that plastered his throat. This may be all very well with your master, but you don't humbug me, sir. Tell me instantly, what have you done with the clothes? This abrupt transition from lively to severe certainly took Maguire by surprise and he seemed for an instant as much disconcerted as it is possible to disconcert an Irish gentleman's gentleman. Me? Is it meself, then, that's the ghost to your honour's thinking? said he, after a moment's pause, and with a slight shade of indignation in his tones. Is it I would stale the master's things? And what would I do with them? That you best know. What your purpose is I can't guess, for I don't think you mean to stale them, as you call it, but that you are concerned in their disappearance I am satisfied. Confound this blood. Give me a towel, Barney. Maguire acquitted himself of the commission. As I've a sowl, your honour, said he solemnly, little it is meself knows of the matter, and after what I seen, what you've seen, why, what have you seen? Barney, I don't want to inquire into your flirtations, but don't suppose you can palm off your saucer eyes and gig lamps upon me. Then as sure as your honour's standing there, I saw him, and why wouldn't I, when Miss Pauline was to the fore as well as meself, and— Get along with your nonsense. Leave the room, sir. But the master, said Barney imploringly, and without a breeches, sure he'll be catching cowled. Take that, rascal, replied Ingoldsby, throwing a pair of pantaloons at rather than to him. But don't suppose, sir, you shall carry on your tricks here with impunity. Recollect there is such a thing as a treadmill, and that my father is a county magistrate. 
Barney's eye flashed fire. He stood erect, and was about to speak, but mastering himself, not without an effort, he took up the garment and left the room as perpendicular as a Quaker. Ingoldsby, said Charles Seaforth after breakfast, this is now past a joke. Today is the last of my stay, for notwithstanding the ties which detain me, common decency obliges me to visit home after so long an absence. I shall come to an immediate explanation with your father on the subject nearest my heart, and depart while I have a change of dress left. On his answer will my return depend. In the meantime, tell me candidly, I ask it in all seriousness and as a friend, am I not a dupe to your well-known propensity to hoaxing? Have you not a hand in? No, by heaven, Seaforth, I see what you mean. On my honour, I am as much mystified as yourself, and if your servant, not he, if there be a trick, he at least is not privy to it. If there be a trick, why, Charles, do you think? I know not what to think, Tom. As surely as you are a living man, so surely did that spectral anatomy visit my room again last night, grin in my face, and walk away with my trousers. Nor was I able to spring from my bed, or break the chain which seemed to bind me to my pillow. Seaforth, said Ingoldsby after a short pause, I will, but hush, here are the girls and my father. I will carry off the females, and leave you a clear field with the governor. Carry your point with him, and we will talk about your breeches afterwards. Tom's diversion was successful. He carried off the ladies en masse, to look at a remarkable specimen of the class Dodocandria monogynia, which they could not find, while Seaforth marched boldly up to the encounter, and carried the governor's outworks by a coup de main. I do not stop to describe the progress of the attack. Suffice it that it was as successful as could have been wished, and that Seaforth was referred back again to the lady. The happy lover was off at a tangent. The botanical party was soon overtaken, and the arm of Caroline, whom a vain endeavour to spell out the Linnaean name of a daffy down dilly had detained a little in the rear of the others, was soon firmly locked in his own. What was the world to them? Its noise, its nonsense, and its breaches all. Seaforth was in the seventh heaven. He retired to his room that night as happy as if no such thing as a goblin had ever been heard of, and personal chattels were as well fenced in by law as real property. Not so Tom Ingoldsby. The mystery, for mystery there evidently was, had not only piqued his curiosity, but ruffled his temper. The watch of the previous night had been unsuccessful probably because it was undisguised. Tonight he would ensconce himself, not indeed behind the arras, for the little that remained was, as we have seen, nailed to the wall, but in a small closet which opened from one corner of the room, and by leaving the door ajar, 
would give to its occupant a view of all that might pass in the apartment here did the young ghost-hunter take up a position with a good stout sapling under his arm a full half-hour before seaforth retired for the night not even his friend did he let into his confidence fully determined that if his plan did not succeed the failure should be attributed to himself alone at the usual hour of separation for the night tom saw from his concealment the lieutenant enter his room and after taking a few turns in it with an expression so joyous as to betoken that his thoughts were mainly occupied by his approaching happiness proceed slowly to disrobe himself the coat the waistcoat the black silk stock were gradually discarded the green morocco slippers were kicked off and then ay and then his countenance grew grave it seemed to occur to him all at once that this was his last stake nay that the very breeches he had on were not his own that to-morrow morning was his last and that if he lost them a glance showed that his mind was made up he replaced the single button he had just subducted and threw himself upon the bed in a state of transition half chrysalis half grub wearily did tom ingoldsby watch the sleeper by the flickering light of the night lamp till the clock striking one induced him to increase the narrow opening which he had left for the purpose of observation the motion slight as it was seemed to attract charles's attention for he raised himself suddenly to a sitting posture listened for a moment and then stood upright upon the floor ingoldsby was on the point of discovering himself when the light flashing full upon his friend's countenance he perceived that though his eyes were open their sense was shut that he was yet under the influence of sleep seaforth advanced slowly to the toilet lit his candle at the lamp that stood on it then going back to the bed's foot appeared to search eagerly for something which he could not find for a few moments he seemed restless and uneasy walking round the apartment and examining the chairs till coming fully in front of a large swing-glass that flanked the dressing-table he paused as if contemplating his figure in it he now returned towards the bed put on his slippers and with cautious and stealthy steps proceeded towards the little arched doorway that opened on the private staircase as he drew the bolt tom ingoldsby emerged from his hiding-place but the sleep-walker heard him not he proceeded softly downstairs followed at a due distance by his friend opened the door which led out upon the gardens and stood at once among the thickest of the shrubs which there clustered round the base of a corner turret and screened the postern from common observation at this moment ingoldsby had nearly spoiled all by making a false step the sound attracted seaforth's attention he paused and turned 
and as the full moon shed her light directly upon the pale and troubled features tom marked almost with dismay the fixed and rayless appearance of his eyes there was no speculation in those orbs that he did glare withal the perfect stillness preserved by his follower seemed to reassure him he turned aside and from the midst of a thick-set laurastinus drew forth a gardener's spade shouldering which he proceeded with greater rapidity into the midst of the shrubbery arrived at a certain point where the earth seemed to have been recently disturbed he set himself heartily to the task of digging till having thrown up several shovelfuls of mould he stopped flung down his tool and very composedly began to disencumber himself of his pantaloons up to this moment tom had watched him with a wary eye he now advanced cautiously and as his friend was busily engaged in disentangling himself from his garment made himself master of the spade seaforth meanwhile had accomplished his purpose he stood for a moment with his streamers waving in the wind occupied in carefully rolling up the small clothes into as compact a form as possible and all heedless of the breath of heaven which might certainly be supposed at such a moment and in such a plight to visit his frame too roughly he was in the act of stooping low to deposit the pantaloons in the grave which he had been digging for them when tom ingoldsby came close behind him and with a flat side of the spade the shock was effectual never again was lieutenant seaforth known to act the part of a somnambulist one by one his breeches his trousers his pantaloons his silk net tights his patent cords his showy greys with the broad red stripe of the bombay fencibles were brought to light rescued from the grave in which they had been buried like the strata of a christmas pie and after having been well aired by mrs botherby became once again effective the family the ladies especially laughed the peterses laughed the simpkinsons laughed barney maguire cried botheration and mamselle pauline mon dieu charles seaforth unable to face the quizzing which awaited him on all sides started off two hours earlier than he had proposed he soon returned however and having at his father-in-law's request given up the occupation of rajah hunting and shooting nabobs led his blushing bride to the altar mr simpkinson from bath did not attend the ceremony being engaged at the grand junction meeting of savans then aggregating from all parts of the known world in the city of dublin his essay demonstrating that the globe is a great custard whipped into coagulation by whirlwinds and cooked by electricity a little too much baked in the isle of portland and a thought underdone about the bog of allen was highly spoken of and narrowly escaped obtaining a bridgewater prize 
Miss Simpkinson and her sister acted as bridesmaids on the occasion. The former wrote an epithalamium, and the latter cried, Lassie me, at the clergyman's wig. Some years have since rolled on. The union has been crowned with two or three tidy little offshoots from the family tree, of whom Master Neddy is Grandpapa's darling, and Marianne, Mamma's particular sock. I shall only add that Mr. and Mrs. Seaforth are living together quite as happily as two good-hearted, good-tempered bodies, very fond of each other, can possibly do, and that since the day of his marriage Charles has shown no disposition to jump out of bed or ramble out of doors o' nights, though from his entire devotion to every wish and whim of his young wife, Tom insinuates that the fair Caroline does still occasionally take advantage of it so far as to slip on the breeches. End of section 3